We've examined the way Sabbath is talked about in the Ten Commandments, how it's a command to rest listed in the book of Exodus, but also an invitation to remember being freed from slavery in the book of Deuteronomy. We've seen that Sabbath is something that God gives to us for the community, within the community, and that without Sabbath, we have no hope of learning what it means to really be good neighbors. And last week, we heard the really good news that Jesus, as Lord of the Sabbath, invites us to live, rest, and freedom, not as a list of rules, but almost more like an art form. And yet there's still one aspect of Sabbath that I think is really important for us to talk about, and I was excited that it fit on this day because it's significant to have this conversation on Mothering Sunday. Because when I look at rest, I mean, when I look at Sabbath, it is rest and it is freedom, and yes, it is resistance against the ways of Pharaoh and every other empire that surrounds us, but but Sabbath maybe even at its heart, is nurture. Nurture is defined as the process of caring for and encouraging the growth or the development of someone or something. We do nurturing a lot, even if we're not parents. We nurture the flowers in our gardens by watering them and adding extra soil because, you know, we have clay otherwise. We nurture tomato plants by getting those nifty wire wraps that you put around them so that the plant grows up instead of falling all over the ground. And we nurture children, whether they live in our houses or uh, we find them in classrooms. When we read to them and we teach them good manners and we pray with them and we teach them stories and we potty train them and we do homework with them and we teach them how to tie their shoes, we are nurturing them. And so nurture is not something that's done by accident, and it's not something that is uh, towards any kind of haphazard goal. Nurture is done on purpose and for a purpose. It has a specific goal in sight, like beautiful flowers, good tomatoes, or kind and curious children that grow into adults of good character. And so in the same way, God, our perfect parent, both good mother and good father, nurtures us, his children. And Sabbath seems to me to be one of the most critical components in the upbringing of God's children. And let's look back on this text that we just read. These are the Hebrew people, the ones who were just uh, rescued from Egypt as slaves. They are the descendants of Abraham and had been slaves in Egypt for generations. And as slaves, they knew the full and oppressive power of Pharaoh and his relentless pursuit of more. It was a horrible existence. Where we picked up in the story in Exodus 16, Moses had just led thousands of these people out of Egypt as free women and men. In fact, they took stuff from Egypt with them as the Egyptians were giving them things as they were leaving But when Pharaoh Pharaoh changed his mind and went charging after them, uh, and then God opened up the Red Sea for the Hebrews to cross on dry dry ground and then allowed the waters to swallow Pharaoh back up, and they were really, really free this time. And so these people by this point had received and witnessed so many miracles that it seems they kind of lost track of them all. 
Because by the time we get to Exodus chapter 16, the 11 verses that we didn't read at the beginning, uh, they are a complaining, whining, miserable bunch. They are anxious, uh, they are fearful, they are grumbling, and they feel like, okay, we're free, but now we're stuck in the middle of this desert. There's no food, and they begin to think that they're just going to be out there starving to death, and they even are audacious enough to say, I wish we could go back to Egypt, where at least we knew where we could get food. I'm telling you, if those are my kids... But God is a very different parent. God is so good and so gracious and so patient and so surprising. God doesn't roll his eyes and say, well, see if I ever help you again. God doesn't prove why being free in the desert is actually better than being slaves in Egypt. He doesn't put them in timeout or ground them or take away their screen time. In fact, maybe perhaps the most surprising, he doesn't correct them at all. God feeds them. It's like God said, you know what? You are acting really snotty right now, young woman, young man, but I'm just going to ignore that and get to the real root of the issue because I can tell that you are hangry. (laughs) Hungry and angry put together is a horrible mess and you just need some food and it'll solve all this problem. So, of course, there's plenty of discussion about what exactly God fed them with what was manna anyway. I mean, they were asking that question then. We read it in, in, this, in the scripture, and we're still asking it now. Some have offered that it was a naturally occurring edible byproduct of an insect. does not sound entirely tasty. Um, an insect that drank juice from a specific kind of tree that was found near the desert. And it's, it is flaky. It can be baked or boiled and eaten as bread. And people indigenous to that area are still familiar and can still eat it on occasion when necessary. Um, but it doesn't necessarily matter if whether manna was provided through God orchestrating the events in his creation or through a nightly special delivery by angels Either way, it is God's very particular, careful provision. Also, hundreds of quail flocking to just the right place every night took some work as well. But however it happened, God, creator of the cosmos, prepared meals twice a day, every day, for 40 years for his children. But there's a really unusual thing about the way God went about this feeding program. God's meal plan had pretty strict rules. So we, we heard this, but the first one is that you could only gather as much as your household needed for just one day, one day at a time. And if you couldn't gather that much, the manna was multiplied miraculously, Uh, And no one had too little. Everybody had enough. But if you gathered more than your household could eat in one day and you tried to save some for later, it went bad. It smelled terrible and maggots started growing overnight, which sounds really awful to me. There was no food to be gathered on on the seventh day, and that was rule number three. On the sixth day, God told them to gather twice as much as they needed, breaking one of the other other rules, but it's for a specific purpose. 
They could gather a double portion, and somehow, miraculously, that didn't go bad Friday night to Saturday. But no manna came on the seventh day. And so no one even had to leave their house. And when they tried to leave their house, there was nothing to do. They didn't need it. This is really amazing to me. And one of the reasons it's so stunning is because this was a full two months before they even got to Mount Sinai. If you're familiar with the journey of the the Hebrew people, the Israelite people out of Egypt, they went through the desert and made their way to a mountain where they were able to worship God and receive the Ten Commandments and be invited into the covenant that would make them God's people. But they hadn't gotten there yet. These people were fresh out of Egypt. In Egypt, they lived under the law of that land, which was keep up or die. Or another uh, way to say it would be the strongest one wins or at least survives. They hardly knew who God was. They didn't have any codified theology. They didn't have an order or form of worship. They didn't have any laws or system of government. They didn't have a nationality. They didn't have birth certificates. They didn't know who they were. But now, out here in the wilderness, at least one thing was clear. And that was that they weren't playing by Egypt's rules anymore. You know those signs that post the family rules? You see them a lot on Pinterest or Etsy. A lot of times they're really cute, sometimes hand-painted. You might have one in your house. Here's an example of one. And it reads, I know that there's a delay, it's not Jordan's fault. In this house, we make memories, we forgive quickly, we count our blessings, we cherish friends, we make mistakes, we say, I'm sorry, we laugh a lot, we love deeply, and we live life. That's a great family. I want to be a part of that family. In the wilderness, at the very beginning of this relationship, God welcomes his children into their new home, into their new family. And it's like he points to the family rules, but there's just two of them. In this house, there's always enough, and one day a week we do absolutely nothing at all. That's the rules we got, people. Welcome. Just two rules. Two gifts. Before the law was given, God gave food and Sabbath. And so in this family, how well you ate did not depend on how fast or strong or cunning you were. And how well you rested did not depend on your ability to work ahead because there was no getting ahead. There was no need to get ahead. And the Hebrew people, I'm sure, were confounded by this. It had matched nothing of their previous experience. And yet, I think the only result that they could come up with is all we have is due to God's goodness. Not our ability to gather manna better than anybody else. And here in the wilderness, Sabbath wasn't a rule to follow. It was a gift. 
It was a rhythm. It was a new way of life. It was a practice that shaped their lives, that made the week different than the week before. When you work every single day, 24 hours, what difference does it make? What day is it? But now the days counted. They mattered. And their work, their relationships with one another, and their understanding of God was shaped by this practice of Sabbath. So I'm a parent, for those who don't know me. I'm really in the middle. Brent and I are in the thick of teaching and training young children. Galilee is 20 months and Austin is four. And so it's very possible that I could just give my interpretive framework to this passage because I kind of see parenting stuff everywhere these days. But I'm just going to tell you, to me, in this story, I see God as a parenting genius. At our best, at our best, (laughs) parents set up boundaries and habits and protective measures to help our children flourish. We plan meals and we lay out a homework schedule. We make up songs or we use Daniel Tigers to teach about routines and emotions and our address. We organize sticker charts and we give awards for mastering skills and displaying obedience. We schedule doctor appointments and dance lessons and soccer games and family vacations. And we do all of this as acts of nurturing because we want our kids to grow a certain way. I have a friend who is really amazing at this. Back this year in spring break, she invited us to participate in her family spring break plan. She had a plan for spring break, and she had a design for each day of that week filled with special projects and outings that enabled her kids to learn and have fun together and with our friend group. And she also has a giant chart of summertime activities that fills up most of the wall in her kitchen, and it includes a daily summertime schedule so that there is a healthy and intentional structure for every day and there's purpose guiding their time. They have a similar daily pattern and they have a weekly rhythm in their lives even when they don't have school to provide structure. Now, I do not know how she does this. (laughs) I, I, I don't really do that very well, but I think it's amazing and I love it. And I think God is doing something like that for us in Sabbath setting our weekly rhythm and practice. A calendar up on the wall that says, on this day we do this, on this day we do this, on this day, but don't do anything here. It's a different kind of day. And all of this nurture that God provides serves a purpose. God is working to teach us, to shape us, to encourage our growth and our development in a very specific direction. And it might sound trite, but I really think to get at the, the root of the direction that God is shaping us into is to love God well and to love each other well. If God is our parent, God wants a certain kind of relationship with us and God wants us to have a certain kind of relationship with each other, our siblings. Don't knock your sister over. Don't throw a ball at her head. Don't tackle her. Don't take her cup. Don't take her blanket. These are the things that God says to us. Right now, 
you might have guessed, those are things that I say to my son Austin. And right now, Austin has this saying that comes out pretty often. He says, it's not a competition, which is really ironic because most of the time he does try to make everything into a race. But this phrase comes out particularly when someone else has initiated the race and he doesn't want to get beat. But I think that our God, good mother and good father, actually agrees with Austin's assessment of things. It's not a competition. But we usually act like it is, don't we? If left to our own devices, we would elbow one another to the largest pile of manna and scoop it all up. Or we would race to the last cup of coffee in the pot. Or we would buy up all the bread on the shelves before the tornado hits. We operate under the belief that someone else's plenty automatically means not enough for us. And that drives us to behave a certain way with one another. But God is diligent in reminding us of family rule number one, and that is that there is always enough. And one of the ways that he reminds us of this is by limiting the amount of time that we have to fend for ourselves. If we think that the lies of it's all up to me or the strongest one wins or keep up and die is really the way the world operates, then how do we explain it if one day a week we actually have plenty without doing anything for it? No thanks to our own strength and ability. Life keeps going, the world keeps spinning, and we're okay. God's provision on Sabbath reinforces that we are recipients of his goodness, not manufacturers of goodness. And if we receive this shaping practice, if we follow along with God's curriculum, this frees us from competition. It frees us from the pattern of getting, the anxious drive, and the relentless pursuit of more and more and more and more. And at least for one day, that pattern is broken. And we can remember that that really isn't how creation was built. On one day a week, we stop getting more and we realize we have enough. Unless we don't have enough. Right? I think it's worth recognizing, because I know some of you in this room are already thinking it, that some among us don't have enough. This is a really great game plan if God is just feeding you practically by hand every single day, but what about real life in Oklahoma City in 2018? What about now? What about us? How do we have enough? Well, I think it's an important thing to say here, but there's a whole lot more to say than I can actually say right now. But I just want to add this, that Sabbath is just the first of several commands that God gave, which is aimed at leveling the playing field in God's family and restricting poverty among God's people. The people of God may never have actually practiced it, 
We don't know for sure. But within the God-given laws of the people of Israel, you can read about them in Deuteronomy and Leviticus. They're there. There were commands to forgive unpaid debts and to release slaves who had sold themselves to pay off debt every seven years. Every seven years, the slate was wiped clean. And in case a family got really bad in the hole and even had to have their property repossessed by lenders, even that family property was to be to was to be returned every 50 years. Now, I don't think we can point a lot of fingers at the Israelites for never practicing these commands. They're a hard lot to swallow. But God promises that in his family there is always enough if we abide by the family rules. And so I think for us, It means that if we see someone who doesn't have enough for Sabbath or for any other given day for that matter, I think it means that perhaps God's enough for them might come as we share God's enough for us. In weekly Sabbath and in the other forms of Sabbath practice, God is shaping us to love our neighbor well. He wants us to see and respect them as human, even family, and not just some obstacle on our pathway to getting more. But even that would not be possible unless Sabbath was also about God's relationship with us. Sabbath gives us time to be still. Sabbath is time free from work, and performance. Sabbath is time to receive and to let ourselves be loved. In Egypt, the Hebrews had been inundated with lies that they were only worth as much as hard as they could work. And if you and I are honest, many of us have believed these lies too. Perhaps we have assumed that God needs to be impressed Or that, like our somewhat grumpy but lovable Aunt Marilyn, he needs to see us busy or he'll give us a job to do. So we think that in order to achieve some kind of spiritual growth, we have to maintain high levels of activity, group Bible studies and individual Bible reading and keeping up with our prayer list and volunteering here and volunteering there and attending worship and Sunday school, parish group, choir, serving on boards and committees and teams. We need it all. But what if, what if in Sabbath we experienced that God preferred actually for us to be still instead of to perform? What if we found that rest itself, good old sitting on the couch, doing nothing, even falling asleep, what if that could be spiritual in and of itself? What if we could experience a new kind of relationship with God where we just learned how to enjoy God's presence? Since starting this church, Sunday mornings for our family have been sacred and beautiful. It's the most time that we spend awake, in the house, all at the same time together, all week long. And sometimes we make a trip to the zoo or the science museum or the park, but more often than not, like today, 
we just were together. And I have to be very honest and confessional with you that at first I found myself frustrated by a day completely void of accomplishments. But thankfully, over time, and with God's grace, I have come to see not only how much Austin and Galilee love these days together, but how much I love them and need them. It's a day to be together, a day to love on my kids and let them have plenty of time to love on me, which usually includes crawling all over me and smearing peanut butter everywhere. A day to snuggle on the couch and take walks and do a bunch of nothing without feeling guilty about it. And a day that repeats often, that becomes a pattern, a rhythm, and builds significant shared memories in our family and hopefully in my kids' developing brains. And in this, I realize, what if, as my very best parent, God wants the same kind of time with me? What if Sabbath is a day for me to relax on God's couch while I lie with my kids on my couch? What if Sabbath is not so much about what I accomplish on that day, but what a string of Sabbath days accomplishes in me over a lifetime? What if this Sabbath is shaping me to know and respond to God as a non-anxious, grumpy Aunt Marilyn presence in my life? What if, in Sabbath, I can come to know the God who is restful instead of all those restless gods of Egypt and everywhere else? Author Lynn Babb says it this way, Sabbath is the day when we hear God say, let go of your need for competence, your need for completion, and rest. Enjoy being with me. Notice how good I am. Spend time looking around and pay attention to the many gifts that I have given you. And so this week, I have come to this conclusion. I've decided that Sabbath was actually the very first sacrament. A sacrament is what is known as an outward sign of an inward grace. It's the way that we experience what is holy and immaterial in and through the physical and material matter that's all around us. And so we usually just talk about baptism and Eucharist as sacrament. They allow us to receive God's grace through water and bread and wine. But Sabbath is sacrament of time. It's a 24-hour period, just like the other 24-hour periods that make up our lives. But like water and like bread and like wine, this 24-hour period allows us to know and experience, and be shaped by what is holy. God, our good Father, and our good Mother cares for us, encourages us in growth, educates us, nurtures us as we practice Sabbath. And this same God invites us to the table 
to receive our family meal. And this is a meal of provision, God's provision, not ours. And it's a meal of dependence, our dependence on God. It's a meal of remembrance. It's a meal where we let Jesus cook and set the table. And we just show up and eat and let ourselves be loved. And at this table, like in the desert, there is always enough. The grace that Jesus offers here, the good gifts that fulfill us, will never run out. And they are enough for each of us. On the night that Jesus was betrayed by those he came to save, he sat down to a meal with his friends. And he picked up the bread and he broke it. And he passed it to them and he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. And then in the same way, he picked up the cup and he took a drink and he passed it to them and he said, now this is my cup, this is my blood, the blood of the new covenant poured out for your sins. And today, he says the same for us. We have enough because Jesus has given everything to us. And he shares it freely. So I encourage you, I invite you to receive what he gives with joy. He has given it to you that you may enjoy it. And so in just a moment, I'll invite you to come down this aisle with your hands cupped, ready to receive, not to take. And you'll receive the bread and dip it into the juice And I want you to know that this is Jesus' table. And as long as you are ready to receive that which Jesus offers, you are welcome here. And we want no barriers. So we've made sure that our bread is gluten-free and the cup is non-alcoholic. And when you are ready, I invite you to come and eat with your family at the table of your parents. Come with joy.